might have to pile. I'm gonna so, have to pile some things up. Yeah, well, whatever works. So have you spoken with anyone else yet? Yeah, I spoke to just through email communication. I've spoken to a couple of people that you recommended, uh, Angela Lee and Hannah Mitchowski. Cool. And I'm meeting with them up uh, in the upcoming week. Nice. And I met with um, John Stokes, who's a researcher from MIT. We nice. met a couple of times. He's doing work in, uh, or he's using machine learning for antibiotic research. Oh, interesting. So it's outside of the zone of what we're talking about in terms of AI or algorithms, but I think it's an interesting and useful perspective to talk about the technology. Nice. Cool. Okay, I'm just gonna grab like two more books so it's a little <laughs> bit higher. One second. Sure. Great, thanks. All right, stack of books. Beautiful. All right, according to. Perfect. So thanks for joining me today, Yuan. Uh, for the listeners, I'm with Yuan Stevens, and I have to ask you, how would you define yourself? What do you label yourself in terms of your career? What work do you do? Uh, I, I'm drawn to you because of an article that you wrote on medium.com in 2017 about artificial intelligence, uh, the promises and perils of artificial intelligence. And it seems like you've been really busy since then. So can you talk about your work? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Yuan Stevens, as you know, and I am uh, a law and policy expert focused on information security and data protection. And what this means for me is that I conduct research on information and how to protect it and how to use it in ways that is appropriate and responsible and accountable and facil facilitates accountability. I would say that I started researching artificial intelligence in 2017 because it was all the rage. I was able to join the Berkman Klein team of summer interns, which I'm so grateful for. And when I joined, they had a focus on um, artificial intelligence. Uh, they were working with MIT to, it was a multi-year project that looked at artificial intelligence and what it meant. And I would say that the article I wrote that I published on Medium with the support of folks from Berkman sort of sought to map out some of the underlying issues of AI. What I was able to determine is that what we're worried about when we talk about AI is scale, scale of harm. And we're also worried about the idea that we've trusted humans to intervene and to make decisions. And what we are seeing is a shift towards reliance on computers to make some decisions for us or to recommend decisions that humans would either accept or reject. Often we would accept them because we think that AI or uh, computers or mathematical models are trustworthy and neutral. So that paper, you know, or the short, short essay, if you will, you know, I think was important for me as a person. And it's really great to see that it's also been of interest to others. What I do now is I look at 
a lot of things in my in my work, but I work as policy lead on technology, cybersecurity, and democracy at the Ryerson Leadership Lab, which is a think tank at Ryerson University, which tries to build leaders, but also conduct policy research that affects a great you know great number of people, so that we can help Canada advance and progress in ways that facilitate accountability and transparency. And what we're talking about when we talk about AI is we're talking about how increasingly at a rapid scale, algorithmic technologies, decision-making technologies are intertwined with social life, political life. And a lot of decisions are being automated by computer algorithms in invisible ways and unnoticeable ways. So how might, I mean, what sort of transparencies do the population of digital media technology users need, which they don't really have right now? Well, one of the first things that is needed is public knowledge of when profiling occurs. So in the general data protection regulation in the EU, it is required that people provide informed consent when there's collection and processing of their sensitive data. Sensitive data involves aspects of your identity upon which you can be discriminated against. For example, when a company would collect your face or your, your information about your race or your sex or your political affiliation, that is sensitive enough data that it is deemed worthy protection such that you should provide consent. So at the basis of transparency is is for me the I you know I believe strongly in the importance of people knowing when technology is being used, when their data is being collected, because if you don't know, then you can't challenge it. And that is some of the that's such like that's such a basic thing to know when this technology is being used. And of course, there's a difference between knowing as well and providing consent. You can you can be informed that technology is being used. So for example, if you cross into the Canadian border by plane, then your biometric data is being collected and it's also part of our passport. That's one thing, but going beyond that, it's really important that people be able to consent or and be able to withdraw their consent for technology that's being used and that collects their, their data and sensitive data. Right now in Canada, we don't have laws that actually enable you to provide consent. There, you know, there, it doesn't say you don't have to provide consent. It, when the law is silent on things like providing consent, then it means that corporations and, and entities like the government can not require consent and then deploy technology without us consenting to that and providing consent. And a, another important aspect of consent as well is the ability to say no. So in the EU, and this is going to sound really nitty gritty, but when you use websites in the EU, you know, you may have noticed that a lot of websites since the GDPR was enacted in 2016, that you have to accept cookies. Cookies are actually a really important aspect of using the internet because their data is stored on your computer. And there's many different kinds of, of cookies as well. But cookies actually facilitate sort of tracking and surveillance in really important and insidious ways. And when you look at a website and it says, do you consent to us collecting cookies or not? And if the choice of not means you can't use the website, then that actually isn't informed and explicit consent. In the EU under the GDPR, you know, you have to be able to provide 
consent that allows you to use the thing or do the thing while also saying no to the kind of surveillance and data gathering techniques that would otherwise be enacted if you consented. So right now that is a really specific example of how, of what consent should look like and what it shouldn't look like. And how do we go about getting that in Canada? What's the process or what was the process for the EU? Well, the EU, you know, in the EU, they enacted the general data protection regulation, which has required all the nation states and EU members to enact law that provides equal or greater regulation or protection than the GDPR requires. In Canada, what we need is actually a fundamental shift from law that protects our privacy to law that en enables informational self-determination. Right now in Canada, you know, you have a really sort of messy set of laws that, develop, that developed in a patchwork fashion that protects our privacy. But when we're talking about the use of our, our data, we're actually, you know, privacy is only one part of that. And right now, there's actually, a, you know, a law that has been tabled to the federal government to change our privacy law, particularly that which, you know, um, at the federal level, that which, re which affects private sector. And there's been a proposed inclusion of a provision that says you have the right to know how an algorithm works when it impacts you. So, you know, we have this data, you know, sorry, let's, let's, let's call it a spade a spade. It's privacy regulation or privacy law. And they're trying to shoehorn in one aspect of data protection law. But the problem is right now in Canada, we have this philosophical underpinning to our privacy law that says that the most important thing is your privacy. And of course, privacy is so important, but when you have a, a law that conceives of freedom as freedom from interference from the state, then that law is going, is going to be limited. You know, the, the general data protection regulation actually is an extension of the European Convention on Human Rights. It's grounded in, in the understanding that when you're protecting a person's data, you're actually protecting some of their most important fundamental freedoms, one of which is privacy, but other things include the freedom from discrimination or the freedom, for example, to be freedom. Uh, discrimination is the most prominent, but Canada should be modeling its privacy law off of the general data protection regulation. And that work would require a sort of seismic shift in the understanding of what is being protected. It isn't just our privacy, but it actually involves the, the right to choose what is done with our information. And that includes our information being collected for the, for purpose, for the purposes of profiling or to be used at all for profiling. And, you know, the, the insertion of a provision in the, the future private sector privacy act or privacy law, the treasury board secretariat at the federal level in Canada issued the director of an automated decision-making in the last few years. And this was actually seen as really important and also as a sort of significant kind of progress made at, in terms of the regulation of AI. The Director of Automated Decision-Making encourages the federal government to use AI in a way that mitigates the risk. What we see is that there's privacy law for the private sector that has one provision that says humans should know how algorithms work. What Canada needs is law that would require the private sector to 
be transparent about when artificial intelligence is being used or recommendation systems or automated decision-making systems, whatever you want to call them. And also we, you know, the private sector needs to be required to mitigate the risks of that technology. Sometimes the technology shouldn't even be used. There are pushes in Canada to have a moratorium on the use of face recognition technology, for example. Right. There are pushes in the US to ban that technology. So I'm gonna, I'm just opening it, you know, I'm opening up a sort of Pandora's box here, but I will, like my bottom line is that Canada's direction in terms of how AI is regulated when it comes to our fundamental freedoms is inadequate. And that's partial, there's so many reasons for that. I'll stop there because I want to answer any other questions you have. Sure. Well, you bring, you brought up facial recognition technology, also known as FRT. I know this is a big focus for you. And I know that there are organizations like Clearview AI, which are selling their facial recognition technology services to police services like the Toronto police. And I know that this is leading to incorrect profiling behaviors which is not just happening in the States, but is happening in Canada. Can we talk about the dangers of FRT as it's being implemented in Canada? I would say facial recognition technology in Canada is a bit of a wild west in that it's being used, it's being deployed, it's being implemented, and the average Canadian doesn't really know much about it, I would say. Um, and partially that's by design. You know, in my work on face recognition technology, I've examined that and understood that in Canada, facial recognition technology is being deployed very rapidly and with very little oversight. This is worrisome because of what's at stake. In the last few years, law was enacted that requires the police to get permission from a court if they want to collect our DNA data, for example. The basis of that decision relied on the idea that your genetic data is so personal, so unique to you, so ripe, or you know, provides conditions in which abusability is possible which requires court oversight because law enforcement needed that accountability. Right now in Canada, there has been no such changes with respect to facial recognition technology. And I have seen court cases where police can access things like your driver, driver's license photos or you know your passport photo. And what they do is they can compare that to other databases, mugshot databases potentially, and definitely other um, photos and driver license photo databases. And what they can do is they can conclude, at least that in a way that they think it's accurate, that you are a person who's committed a crime. Clearview AI is a perfect example of how corporations can capitalize on law enforcement's desire to conduct their work efficiently. And with the results being that people are can absolutely be wrongly accused of a crime. The people who are most likely to face the effects of this technology in a palpable way are the people who are already being discriminated against in society and by actors like the police. So in um, the US context, there have already been cases of people who are wrongly accused of crimes and who are black. Uh, 
And it is hard to imagine that we're that different in the US that that isn't happening in Canada. In terms of face recognition as well, the Toronto police and at least one other um, police services in Canada are using facial facial recognition technology. If I could regulate face recognition technology in Canada, I would propose law that isn't just about our faces, but as mentioned, is about protecting how we can control and maintain our autonomy over how our data and information is used. However, in the grand scheme of things, what Canada needs is regulation that ensures the right to informational self-determination for all data types. And AI technology is just one situation in which our data is collected and processed with the possibility of infringements on our rights. You know, what Canada needs is regulation that actually probably spans private and public sector that doesn't necessarily distinguish between the two. I have learned as well that there are gaps in the current dichotomy between private and public sector law in Canada. Because right now, our, you know, our privacy law distinguishes between those two. You have law that talks about how the government and law enforcement will use and collect your data. You have law that also pertains to how companies and organizations and sometimes charities, but not always, will use your data. But that bifurcated approach to sectors or industries is, I think, eroding, particularly as companies wrangle their way into governments and or, or particularly as governments procure the services of third parties, for example, and when it's not clear who is responsible for abusing our data. We're talking a lot about discrimination and how particular groups might be experiencing more harms from these technologies than other groups. Just a general, how might AI and personalized content algorithms be maintaining the status quo of dominant groups? I love that question. I can't help but think of work by someone who went to McGill Law with me and who's a friend of mine and who's a brilliant scholar at Cardozo. Her name is Ngoze Okudibin. She's done work that looks at the use of database or big database algorithms in the bail process. What that looks like is the courts relying on statistical analysis and modeling to decide whether or not to keep someone in court in between them being arrested and the date of their first hearing, for example. That is huge because you could sometimes wait weeks, months, potentially even years in jail because of a decision made by a human or made by technology, for example. Her work identifies that right now, the bail decision process in the US context and undoubtedly in the Canadian context, given how similar our you know, treatment of black people is, for example, but the current bail system already is discriminatory against racialized communities, against racially discriminated communities. So when you know, she's, you know, she has examined efforts to use algorithms such as the public safety assessment in the, the, the bail decision-making process or COMPAS, C-O-M-P-A-S, for example, which is being used in the U.S. context. 
what she's uncovered is that we can use that technology, but what it's going to do is perpetuate the discrimination that already exists against people who are racially discriminated against. And that's because the, the data that's collected and the data that's examined in the determination of bail decisions assesses the, the, you know, the safety risk that that person poses to their community or their risk of flight. That is their risk of sort of not appearing at their court hearing. Bail decisions do not assess the impact of that person leaving their community, for example, or the impact that a bail decision would have on the safety of their family or the well-being of their family. Her work is so amazing because she really challenges the logic that presupposes that using algorithms in the bail process can actually lead to better outcomes because one of the problems is that the communities who stand to be the most affected by bail decisions with technology or without you know, algorithms essentially further entrenches the racial status quo such that white people are deemed less of an issue in terms of the safety risks they pose to their community. And this, of course, happens to the detriment of people who are not white. So for me, a lot of what I'm thinking about is the use of algorithms on social media or other content platforms and how personalized content platforms in particular create digital echo chambers where people aren't accessing information that's outside of their immediate beliefs already. So I think this is related to political radicalization on both sides that are occurring in the United States right now. I think that this is occurring, well, I think this is largely how people get caught up in certain conspiracy theories like flat earth or anti-COVID or anti-vax type things. In your perspective, what is the involvement of these digital echo chambers, which may not be intentionally produced, but certainly exist and push through algorithmic sorting? What is their involvement in regulating behaviors and information streams? So Sahar Masachi is a person also at Berkman who is doing research on conceiving of social media platforms as cities. And he says, you know, we've framed the issue of social media content, misinformation, all these things as a problem of content moderation. You know, he's trying to look at how, rather than being a matter of content moderation, which presumes that the content is already going to be there, he's trying to look at the design of social media platforms as, as places where you can not necessarily punish people, but instead, implement solutions, put in things such as speed bumps or limitations in certain ways that would shape the content that is put on those platforms in the first place. And what limitations in terms of design or affordances in terms of design are possible that would actually create the communities in which we want to, to exist and, and live in. And that is to me one of the most fundamental problems of misinformation and of content moderation, which is should certain content be put on there and how do we limit that and what are the solutions for that mm. right well thank you so much Yuan. i i really enjoyed this conversation and we should stay in touch i hope to talk soon
Yeah, I think I, I think I touched on the, the major points I wanted to hit on. Thank you again to UN Stevens. If you're interested in her work, please look her up. She has written a lot of great pieces that are typically free to access on medium.com. UN's perspective into the policy aspects of this matter, I think is really great to build up the concept of bad faith cycles particularly how the bad faith aspect of bad faith cycles is operating. And her perspective also shows us what actions we can do, or rather what we have to do, to help mitigate some of the harms of automized systems. Thanks again to you, Anne. And as always, I hope that you got something out of this episode. Please tune in next week for another episode of the Bad Faith Cycles podcast.